welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, hope you are doing well. This is Arthur Asadurian with Apollo Gia Center. Um, if you're watching this, third time's the charm. I think we fixed all of our issues and I think we should be good. I don't want to take too much time uh, getting this going, but I will bring on my guest and introduce him um, because all the previous videos have been deleted. So um, it is what it is. And we're going to deal with it like this. Uh, Dr. Carl Moser has a BA in Biblical Studies and Languages. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, three MAs in Theology, New Testament, Philosophy from Talbot School of Theology, a THM in the Philosophy of Religion from Fuller Theological Seminary, and a PhD in New Testament from the University of St. Andrews. Now, with your uh, languages specification, uh, was that both Greek and Hebrew, or did you specialize in one or the other? I, I did mostly Greek, but I took both uh, both languages in college, um, and then I did more of each of them in seminary. So yeah. So it's it's fair to say your Greek is pretty up there. Uh, it's it's pretty lousy, actually. Really? Wow. <laughs> uh, you know, I was I was never really. Um, a natural language person. Mm. I had friends who just picked it up and bam, right? Uh, for me, it's it has always been hard work, and so I you know, I always did very well in my classes. I use it. Um, you can see that in my published articles, but uh, I am not an expert on the Greek language per se. Uh, I have to really work at it. So. Yeah, there. You know, I'm. I, I tell my friends it's a spiritual gift. Um, <laughs> if, if you want to consider yeah. tongues in that category, maybe it's the case. No. Um, but I mean, I'm bilingual. My Armenian's pretty good. I mean, I, I read and write not as fast and stuff like that. And so the Greek, there's a lot of similarities. I, I can get it, but it was still very difficult. Uh, oh, but yeah. some people, like, they just, it just works. And I, I don't know what about yeah. it. <laughs> it is, you know, some people pick up. I have a friend, I've actually interviewed him on my channel. Um, he's an American guy from um, from Arkansas, okay? And this guy is um, fluent in Turkish, in Kurmanji, Kurdish. Um, <laughs> he picks up Farsi because of the similarities in the language. Yeah. And he's in Armenia now, and he's learning Armenian, and he's pretty good, I must say. And I just say, Jacob, man, I don't know, because... That's just like, it just comes to you. And it's a right. sort of unfair for people who really struggle learning yes, languages. Yes. It's, it's not cool. So one, one of the guys that I uh, took Greek with uh, in college, uh, a fellow student, I think you know Michael Salmeyer. Mm -hmm. And uh, Michael would take the Greek exam that Mark Duzik gave us, which was we had like a four or a six hour limit. And I would work the whole time feverishly. Oh. And he would watch college football games and do it during the commercials. Um, so, you know, I have another friend who I did the PhD with who needed to read some old church Slavonic texts. And so he had to learn Russian to read the grammar to learn the old church Slavonic. And that took him just a few weeks. Uh, so That's really know. not fair. But, uh, you know, yeah. so I, Michael Salmar is one of the guys uh, that got me into directing 
my education towards philosophy. Um, and he, he kind of has like sort of like a photographic memory from, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's photographic and he wouldn't, but it, it, it kind of functions like that. He, he just remembers things. <laughs> but yeah, I, I took Theology One with him and it mm -hmm. was amazing. And we'll talk about this. I think it's, it's related. Um, so he's a philosopher. He did, he did his New Testament at Talbot and then ended up getting his PhD in philosophy from Oxford. And his... Uh, no, his PhD is uh, a New Testament. Sorry, New Testament, the opposite. Yeah. I should reverse those things. New Testament and then the philosophy degree. But he, the way he approached theology, when I took theology one with him, there was that like nuanced philosophy within there. I was mm. like, oh, I really like this. Um, and then... I was also taking a class called Roots of Modern Thought and getting introduced to apologetics and stuff. And I was like, okay. I. And then I found out that there's a school really close by where a lot of these apologist guys are at. And uh, that's also because uh, Michael went there, uh, went to Talbot. And I was like, oh, I want to go there. That's that's where I want to be. And ended, ended up going there. Um, and right. so, yeah, but it was it was amazing. And, and, and nuances matter in theology quite a bit as we're going to talk about a number of those things, right? Yes, um, yes. Let's quickly run through why you got interested and why you are interested in this subject of theosis. Okay. Maybe at the towards the end of that, tell us why you think others should be interested in this subject. <laughs> well, you've just outlined, what, an hour's worth of talk I for know. me. Um, well, to put it as short as I can, briefly as I can. Uh, I grew up in a non-Christian home, came to faith in high school, and we happened to live in a small uh, Mormon community in southeastern Idaho. Uh, the town itself was 3,000 people, another 1,000 people in surrounding areas. There were 11 LDS wards. Uh, that's their local congregation. Uh, with numbers between two and 300 each. And there were six, I think, non-Mormon churches. Uh, the largest of those was Jehovah's Witnesses, followed by non-instrumental Church of Christ. Then we had a Presbyterian, Southern Baptist, Catholic, uh, very small Methodist church, and a four-square church. And in high school, I only recall about a dozen students or so who were not Latter-day Saints. Now, one of the distinctive teachings of Mormonism that has often led uh, Catholics, Protestants, and Eastern Orthodox to say Mormonism is not in a proper sense Christian, hmm. that its teachings are beyond the pale, is the idea that human beings can progress and eventually be exalted to godhood. And so there's a very famous couplet by one of the uh, early presidents of the Mormon church named Lorenzo Snow. It says, um, as God is, man may become. As man is, God once was. I think mm -hmm. I've actually re reversed that. But uh, as, as God, or as man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. And the idea there is that you can become a uh, God who creates worlds out of pre-existing chaotic matter, brings order to them, and that you can have what in LDS parlance is called eternal increase. That is the ability to procreate spirit children after mm. the resurrection of the dead. And on the Mormon view, God the Father is uh, married to God the Mother. 
Um, and uh, a very big part of Mormon teaching is the idea that uh, we can be brought into marriage, not just for time, but for all of eternity uh, through the ordinances and the priesthood of the LDS Church, and that those who enter into this celestial marriage can become what God the Father and God the Mother now are uh, to their offspring. And then as we exalt, uh, progress in our exaltation, uh, God also progresses in his exaltation. Well, <clears throat> in college, uh, at Life Bible College at the time, uh, now Life Pacific University, uh, I had a roommate named Paul Owen. And Paul also happened to be from southeastern Idaho, but a different town, about five hours away. And uh, by God's providence, we end up in the same room. He was a couple years ahead of me. He was working at a little ministry that did outreach to Latter-day Saints. And one day he comes home with a book by a professor at Brigham Young University. And the book is called Are Mormons Christians? Hmm. If I can figure out the camera, there you go. By Stephen E. Robinson. And Robinson has, uh, well, he's passed away uh, recently, but uh, he had a PhD in biblical studies, specifically New Testament from Duke University, which is a pretty decent university. And as I read uh, his little book, um, it was clear that he knew Greek, he knew Hebrew, he'd studied Aramaic. Uh, he was interacting with many of the scholars that I was reading in my courses at Life Bible College. Um, uh, he, he was conversant in New Testament scholarship at a, a high level. And one of the chapters in the book deals with this issue of uh, Orthodox Christians criticizing Mormonism for its belief that human beings can become gods. Hmm. And one of the things he does is uh, quote a number of early church fathers, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Athanasius, uh, Augustine of Hippo, and so on, making statements like "Man be or God became man that men may become gods, or uh, the word of God became what we are that we may become what he is. And Robinson says, look, doesn't that look like the Lorenzo Snow couplet? Uh, it looks like the same idea. Uh, Joseph Smith, the, the Mormon founding prophet, claimed that he was restoring genuinely ancient doctrines from the early church that had been lost. And Robinson and other Latter-day Saints, I found out later, were making an apologetic argument to the effect of, uh, we have it, the earliest Christians had, had it, you don't. It looks like Joseph Smith restored this doctrine to the earth. Hmm. Uh, so that got me interested in what were the church fathers saying? What did they mean by this language? Uh, so when I first read Robinson's chapter, I uh, made my way over to the library. I pulled off uh, the relevant volumes from the anti-Nicene fathers, mm. the Nicene and post-Nicene fathers uh, sets, looked up all of his references, just certain that he must have taken these guys out of context. Uh, it must be that they're quoting the devil or something. And it turns out he did not take any of them out of context. Uh, they said exactly what he reported them as saying. So that got me initially interested in this idea. Uh, uh, I wanted to figure out what did the church fathers mean and what did they not mean? To what degree is there um, substantive similarity with Mormon teaching? 
And to what degree is there only superficial verbal similarity? Uh, so that led a couple years later to um, Paul Owen and I publishing a large review of a book that Robinson co-authored with Craig Blomberg at Denver Seminary called How Wide the Divide, A Mormon and Evangelical in Conversation. We addressed deification uh, in that review, uh, but it was a very limited interaction. So I'd done a little bit of research then, but still wasn't really satisfied with my own uh, understanding of the issue. So I came back to it when I was a THM student at Fuller. And uh, I did a, a directed study on the doctrine of deification and its whole history. And then later I wrote my THM thesis on Mormonism and the Christian doctrine of deification. So that's the first part of your question. How did I get interested? Uh, why do I remain interested in the topic? Uh, that, that I think is an even more interesting one in that uh, or at least more significant, and it is this, I'm convinced that this is a biblical doctrine, first and foremost, right? And I want to believe everything scripture teaches about God, humanity, the human condition, and salvation. Um, secondly, this is simply part of the patrimony of the entire Orthodox Christian tradition, whether we're talking about Protestants, Roman Catholics, or Eastern and Oriental Orthodox churches. Uh, this is part of our shared inheritance. Now, sometimes, uh, actually not sometimes, but very often, uh, deification or theosis is portrayed as an Eastern Orthodox doctrine. Uh, and there's an interesting story, you can ask me about that later in the interview if you want, as to how it is that, that anybody ever came to the idea that it's an Eastern Orthodox doctrine. That's mm. actually an invention of liberal Protestants. Um, but when you actually look at this doctrine's place in church history, it's not just found among the early church fathers or amongst the Byzantine theologians. It's also found in the Latin church fathers, the Latin medieval fathers or, or medieval theologians, and uh, I think for us, most significantly, the reformers. Uh, so we find it in Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, Vermeule, and various others, uh, including quite a number of the Puritans um, who uh, seem to have really latched on to key elements of uh, what the Cappadocian fathers and the Alexandrian fathers were teaching on this. Um, with that, I think it's an important doctrine that people ought to be interested in, uh, not simply because it's a scriptural teaching, but because it helpfully orients the spiritual life in light of what it is that God is redeeming us for. So we often in our discussions of the doctrine of salvation focus on what is it that we're redeemed from. Mm -hmm. And we get into arguments about exactly how it is that sin affects us, the degree to which it affects our will and so on, right? Big debates between the different Christian uh, communions over those questions. Uh, we get into debates about the mechanics of salvation. What exactly is it that was going on on the cross when Jesus died? Uh, you know, debates about different theories of atonement. Uh, we get into debates about justification by faith and whether we ought to understand that in terms of imputed righteousness and infused righteousness and things like this. But those are things about what we're saved from and the mechanics of salvation. 
And I fear that often in these discussions and debates, as important as some of them are, they end up eclipsing what it is that Scripture says we are saved for, the whole mm. purpose and telos of salvation. And I think it's uh, once you're aware of this idea and you read the New Testament in light of it, it becomes very clear that the New Testament writers and Jesus in his own teaching are telling us that we are being redeemed in order to restore the divine image, which was effaced or damaged in the fall, to restore humanity to the glory which God had created us for. Think of Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of, the son of man that you should care. You have created him what for what? Glory yeah. mm -hmm. and honor. Um, it's, it's about us being brought into communion with the Father, Son, and Spirit in fulfillment of Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we may be one with one another, but also one with the Father and the Son and Spirit in the way they are one, or at least in a way that approximates that to the degree creatures can. Uh, salvation in the New Testament is about becoming children of God or in Paul's language, sons of God. So Jesus is the natural son of God who enters into our humanity, taking upon himself human nature for what purpose? Well, the author of Hebrews puts it this way, to bring many sons to glory. Right? Paul puts it in terms of adoption to divine sonship. John puts it in terms of being begotten anew as the technotheu, the children of God. And I think it's just simply a, a helpful thing to think about what it is that I'm redeemed for as well as what is it I'm redeemed from and how is it that God has accomplished this on my behalf. Yeah, so that's a long of, answer to your triple question. No, that's that's fine. It's, it's helpful. The, the sort of way I kind of try to conceptualize this in a, in a different context is when Christians talk about like our eternal resting place being heaven. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times in conversations I've told people, um, uh, sometimes they're, they're shocked because nobody said this. Um, you know, our eternal resting place is not heaven. People kind of look at you like, what do you mean? Like, I thought you die, you go to heaven, you know, well, resurrected bodies and a renewed earth. That's in the book of Revelation. Right. And so um, and that changes the dynamic that changes the dynamic from maybe people's conception, Hollywood's conception of what heaven's going to be like to you no know, God dwells with humanity on this renewed planet that's has a lot of similarities with the garden of Eden. Um and if then that changes your whole conception as to what salvation actually looks like. You know, it's kind of like heaven's heaven's kind of this uh you know, waiting place you could say. Uh, for yeah. that to happen and it seems to be the case that what what you're saying is is very similar to that that there's a bigger picture to our salvation story yes the, and we ought to have a more holistic view of what our salvation story is rather than well you know i'm a sinner i'm wretched i deserve hell god's rescued me from that and here i am but it's like wait there's this whole other half maybe yes. maybe that's the negative side here's the positive side of things that God saved you too. And let's examine what that looks like because scripture has something to say about that. 
Um, now, there's this passage in, I believe it's in First Peter, right? That we will share in his nature. Second Peter. Okay. <laughs> that we will, we will share in his, in his nature that comes into this conversation. Um, well, yeah, or at least Peter it has in mind. Peter says that we, we are called to be partakers of the divine nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, that, that is one of the common proof texts for the doctrine of deification, uh, but that is not actually one of the original proof texts for the doctrine. So it may be the most commonly one-sided now, mm-hmm. but uh, that really began with Cyril of Alexandria. Uh, prior to Cyril, a few church fathers cited it here and there, named most, most notably Origen. But it was not the primary proof text uh, for uh, as this doctrine was first being articulated amongst the church fathers. And there are some who dispute whether it really should be a deification proof text. Uh, one of the things I think is, that's important to note is this notion is not dependent upon a particular text. It certainly is not dependent on only one or two texts. Mm-hmm. And sometimes theologians dismiss it but they, because they say, well, you know, where's the biblical evidence? All you've got is Second Peter 1, 4, uh, Psalm 82, 6, Behold, I said you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. And maybe First John 3, 2, when he uh, returns, referring to Jesus, uh, we shall see him and we shall be like him, <clears throat> for we shall see him as he is. And I think it's important to, to note that, no, this is a doctrine that is tapping into very important and deep biblical themes. And when we look at how the church fathers use Psalm 82.6, which was their favorite proof text, um, they're not using it simply because of the word God. In fact, that's secondary to their, their interests. For them, they, they read that psalm in light of pre-existing Jewish interpretations that connected the declaration there to the Garden of Eden and to uh, God's speaking to Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai, and uh, also hinting toward the Messianic age. And the key line in the psalm for the early Christians was, Behold, you are sons of the Most High. Sons of the Most High. And they interpreted that as a kind of declaration of God's intentions for the creation of humanity and a prediction of what God would do in the restoration of humanity Mm. in the messianic age. Namely, he would make human beings to be sons and daughters of God, sons of the most high. The word gods in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, theoi, was clearly seen as synonymously parallel to sons of the Most High, right? So in Psalm 82, if you know anything about Hebrew poetry, you you know that you always want to look out for synonymous parallelism, antithetical parallelism, synthetic parallelism, and so forth. And in this particular verse, sons of the Most High, gods, are synonymously parallel. And the early fathers are, of course, thinking in Greek, writing in Greek, and they draw on the broad semantic range that the Greek word theos has as an attributive term that is frequently a simple synonym with immortality, athanatos, uh, often used synonymously with the concept of incorruption, aftartos with gloriousness, right, doxos, 
with blessedness, makarios. Mm. And the early Christians read their New Testament very carefully, and they came across the Beatitudes, where Jesus talks about all the different ways in which the redeemed will be blessed, right? And and one of those is uh, that that we are going to be called sons of God, right? Uh, so that sonship language and blessedness language together, right there in the Beatitudes, they think of this as a kind of fulfillment of Psalm eighty-two six. They look at Paul's doctrine of being adopted to divine sonship, sharing in the very sonship of Jesus himself. And they say, well, what does that look like for us ultimately? Well, it's being resurrected from the dead just as he was resurrected. And the Apostle Paul describes that resurrection body in terms of three particular attributes in 1 Corinthians 15. First, he says that we are raised immortal. Secondly, incorruptible. Thirdly, glorious. And so for a second century Greek-speaking Christian, it would be very natural to read that language and say, well, what, what does it mean when Paul says we are raised immortal, incorruptible, and, and glorious? Well, it means that we are made theos in that attributive sense. Um, not that we become deities or objects of divine worship, uh, but that we become partakers of God's own immortality, incorruption, and glory. And one of the reasons they drew that inference is they looked at 1 Timothy 6, where Paul says, God alone has immortality. So, you know, if you put it in terms of premises, God alone has immortality, we are raised immortal. It must be that the immortality that we will share and participate in is none less than God's own immortality. It is God sharing divine life with those whom he has redeemed, bringing them into the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit by pouring out his Spirit into our hearts as that down payment, that guarantee of what is to come and uh, uniting us with Christ himself in sonship. So he is the eternally begotten son of God. We are the adopted sons of God. But Paul is very clear that we are co-heirs with Christ. So that we receive the same inheritance that Jesus in his humanity has received from the Father. Okay, so, you know, you keep drawing and, and talking about how this is a Christian thing. You mentioned that, you know, the Catholics, Latin Church, uh, the, the Eastern Church, say the uh, Byzantine Church. You even mentioned the Oriental uh, churches, yeah. you know, the Coptic churches, Armenian Orthodox, so on and so forth. Um, Protestants, or at least in the early forms, all believe this. So, and you mentioned, I, I got to ask you this. So, why does this just become portrayed as an Eastern Orthodox thing, right? Why is it that it's, oh, it's the Orthodox yeah. who believe this? Where did that come from? So I mean, it's a fascinating story. Uh, obviously, because the doctrine is uh, playing on the broad semantic range of the Greek word theos, it works better in Greek to say these things than it does in many of the other languages, right? Um, so there is a risk of misunderstanding that terminology when you translate it. Uh, 
Nonetheless, the Latin fathers did translate the terminology as deificatio, from which we get deification, and they used it, but it wasn't uh, perhaps the most popular term in their vocabulary, simply because it is too easily misunderstood. Uh, some of the other Christian traditions appropriated the concept, but never had a particular word for it. So if you read, say, in the Syriac tradition, uh, e uh, uh, Ephraim the Syrian or Isaac and Nineveh, they clearly have this concept, but they don't have a word for the concept. They simply express it uh, by means of things like what's called the patristic exchange formula. He became what we are that we might become what he is. Right? That's probably across all traditions uh, the most common way of expressing this doctrine, and it comes in a lot of variant forms. Um, you know, so he was made human that we might be made divine. Um, uh, they're, I mean, they're, they're all over the tradition, uh, trying to convey this same idea, right? And the background to that is actually biblical teaching, uh, things like uh, the Apostle Paul saying, uh, he, he who was rich became poor for our sake that we might become rich or um, he became sin that we might become the righteousness of God, right? That pattern of exchange is there in a variety of places in the New Testament. But the language is easily misunderstood. And even in the Greek fathers, we see sometimes uh, Greek fathers backing away from the language, but not the concept. So for example, in the 400s, when the Nestorian controversy breaks out. Cyril of Alexandria has used the traditional Greek term theopoiesis uh, to make gods or to make theos uh, in his early writings. But it can be misunderstood in the context of the Nestorian controversy to mean something different as if you're becoming a deity or as if Jesus's uh, um, divinity was somehow derivative or participatory. And so Cyril backs away from that language and doesn't use that theopoiesis term so much. Instead, he adapts uh, or adopts Second Peter's phrase, becoming partakers of the divine nature, and a few other uh, ways of getting at this idea. Um, among the Latin uh, medievals, uh, this idea is known. Uh, 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 John Scotus Eugene in the 900s comments on it, and he says, well, gosh, you know, we see this uh, theopoiesis, theosis language in, the, in these Greek writers, many of whom he was translating into Latin. We don't see it as often, but we do sometimes see it in Latin writers. Uh, at the time of the Reformation, there were a number of heterodox movements in what we call the Radical Reformation who had divinizing notions that would be deemed heterodox by all the main Christian traditions. And they were teaching things that were often confused with this traditional Christian way of understanding the goal or telos of salvation. So we get to, say, the, the late 1500s, and somebody like Martin Chemnitz, a prominent Lutheran theologian, uh, comments that... Uh, the words theosis and theopoiesis are perfectly fine terms if you understand them as the church fathers do. However, he says, because of the ravings of that madman Caspar Schrenkveld, 
we can't use them in public without long explanations. And he says, oh, it's probably better just to teach the idea, but not get tripped up over the wording. Uh, during the Puritan era, a century later, we find similar things. Uh, there were anti-Trinitarian groups in England that were teaching heterodox divinizing notions and uh, the Orthodox Anglicans uh, and Puritans were often wanting to agree with the church fathers, but to also distance themselves from uh, these heterodox notions. Now, as a result of all of this, the language recedes to the background, becomes something that tends to be known only by academics, people doing church history or patristics kind of research. You get to the 19th century, and it's strange language to people. Um, and when the, the whole theories of atonement way of thinking about the work of Christ uh, comes on the scene, uh, it gets described as a physical understanding of salvation, that you know, Jesus enters our humanity, and because of this physical physical connection between the logos and human nature. Therefore, humanity is divinized. And that's obviously a crude and backwards kind of notion. Doesn't have any role for human uh, morality and ethics. Seems to be uh, incompatible with justification. And German liberal theologians jump on this and develop an apologetic for a Germanic Christianity in which the linchpin of the whole argument is the idea that the East has deification, the West has justification, and that the two are incompatible. Mm. So Albrecht Ritschel, who isn't often spoken about today, but uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century, he was perhaps the most prominent systematic theologian around. Ritschel makes the claim that, that you have this kind of division and what he really wants to do is get rid of the dogmas of Trinity and incarnation. That, that's just incompatible with a modern view of Christianity. And his students, people like Wilhelm Hermann, Julius Kafkin, and most famously Adolf von Harnack, developed this argument uh, it, with a lot of sophistication. And it comes down to this idea that, well, the church fathers had this this idea of deification, they picked it up not from scripture, not from Jesus, but from Plato and uh, Hellenistic philosophy. So Harnack puts this forward as the famous Hellenization of Christianity mm. thesis. And what he argues is that the Trinity and the incarnation are the products of, of an illicit affair between the gospel and Hellenism. And the linchpin is deification because he observed that Athanasius and some of the Cappadocians and others make an argument for the Trinity, for the full deity of Christ, from the kind of salvation Christ secures for us, namely theopoiesis or deification. The idea being that if Jesus is going to be able to grant to us deification, which is a derivative kind of div divineness, right? It's by participation. It's by sharing. It's a gift given mm. to us. It's not something natural to us or inherent to us. And if we are participating in his divinity, 
his immortality, his incorruption. He must possess those things by nature, in and of himself, just as the Father does, one with the Father. So the early fathers make these arguments for the Trinity and deity of Christ from the fact that he divinizes us. And so Harnack, Ritchell, and these others say, there's the key to the whole thing. If you want to get rid of the Trinity and the incarnation, you have to show that they derive from deification. Deification is a Hellenistic notion. And they argue that with uh, Luther, uh, this is ironic because Luther has a lot to say uh, in favor of deification. He makes a number of statements that are clearly in line with the church fathers. But they argued that Luther um, was, was bringing the West back toward a biblical view. Uh, he was building on what Augustine had done. Uh, Harnack has a, has a footnote where he says that he acknowledges, well, yeah, deification's in Augustine, but if I'm not wrong, it was Augustine himself who brought it to an end in the West. The idea was that Augustine had emphasized justification by faith in forensic categories and salvation, and thus it's really Augustine's theology that undermines deification. And Ritchell and his uh, followers saw themselves as completing Luther's work of completing Augustine mm. to get rid of deification altogether in favor of a, an understanding of salvation that is focused only on justification by faith alone. So it becomes the gospel becomes the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and justification by faith alone. And thus they could have a modern Christianity that does away with these Hellenistic dogmas of Trinity and incarnation that modern men just can't actually believe these days. And this was part of an apologetic for a Germanic Christianity. So they said, look, the Greeks, they're the most primitive of the Christian groups. Their, their theology is uh, uh, indebted to Greek philosophy. Their worship is filled with ritualism and legalism. Mm. <clears throat> they really did not like Eastern Orthodoxy. Harnack had, uh, had firsthand acquaintance with Eastern Orthodoxy because uh, he was born in the Baltic states, which had a large German population at the time, but also a large Russian population. Um, they, uh, they looked at that as the, the Eastern Orthodoxy represents Christianity going astray due to the baneful effects of Hellenism. Mm -hmm. Catholicism is better, especially when Augustine is in ascendancy. But when Augustine's influence wanes, Catholicism becomes too much like Orthodoxy. But then you get Germanic Christianity with Luther. And the Germanic Christianity is the superior Christianity. It's better than Latin. It's way better than Greek. Hmm. And this is all happening at the time that the German states are unifying that we're getting lots of the racial ideology that will ultimately lead to the Third Reich. And um, it, I don't think it's coincidental that uh, the superiority of a Germanic form of Christianity is really what they're trying to establish with this argument that is supposed to be a patristic church his history kind of argument 
but th what they're wanting to do is undermine the whole uh, of the uh, um, of Nicene Christianity in favor of a, a modern liberal Protestantism. Mm -hmm. Now, if that weren't enough, uh, Eastern Orthodox scholars appropriated the richly in Harnack narrative. So you get the um, communist revolution in, the, in Russia. And a lot of Eastern Orthodox priests, theologians, and laity end up moving into the West. And they're trying to find an identity for themselves within the West, which is dominated by Catholic and Protestant thought. And for them, the narrative that Ritchell and Harnack put out is very congenial for creating a distinctive Eastern Orthodox identity and to say, hey, we are being faithful to the church fathers and to scripture. We have deification. You guys don't. You guys are apostate. You guys have gone astray. Mm -hmm. How did you go astray? Well, it's it's Augustine and all that uh, uh, juridical thinking and justification, or it's Aquinas and scholasticism, or it's Protestantism and nominalism or whatever. There, there, it comes in, a, uh, there are several causes listed. But the basic idea is, well, we have deification or theosis, the West doesn't, and this is the intellectual boundary between the two. So you end up with very prominent, Protestant scholars, very prominent Eastern Orthodox scholars, telling the same basic narrative. This looks like the consensus of critical scholarship. Hmm. Surely this must be uh, the assured results that we can all just accept without question, because these are huge scholars, right? Harnack and Florovsky, you know, uh, um, Ritchell and Lasky, they're all in agreement. And then there were some Catholic scholars who also chipped in, also supporting this narrative. And then you end up with deification or theosis being associated exclusively with Eastern Orthodoxy, seen as utterly incompatible with Western theology, but especially Protestant theology. And it, it's that way for about 50, 60 years before scholars begin to look at the primary sources and say, hey, wait a minute, um, that that idea, it, I see it right here in Hillary of Portier, or I see it in Aquinas or Bonaventure or Luther or Calvin or Zwingli, or, and it goes on, you know, uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's, it's all over the Western tradition. Okay. Um, so let's take this into, I, I guess, philosophy a little bit. And this is a question someone had, had written. Um, uh, and they said, what are the various metaphysics of deification? And do they track onto certain traditions or denominations? I mean, you just spoke about that, that, hey, you can, as a Christian, this is a part of our heritage. Just simple as that. But the, I, I'm not very sure what they mean by metaphysics here. Maybe you, you know where the question's coming from. Um, I can guess, but I don't want to. So... Well, that's, that's a big question, and I don't have uh, everything worked out on that. I have done work on this. Um, I think the first thing to note is for the church fathers, they don't have a developed metaphysical system that they're, they're basing this on. Right? It really is coming out of those basic New Testament ideas that 
that Christ became what we are, that we might become what he is, to bring us into divine sonship, to share in divine life, and so forth. And whatever the metaphysics of human personhood are, uh, whatever the metaphysics of God are, right, those aren't the primary questions or issues. It's what is the result here, right? Mm-hmm. And then whatever metaphysically must be the case for that to be true, that's what we ought to accept. Now, the fathers do go to some lengths to ensure that we understand that there is a very important metaphysical difference between deified human beings in the Christian sense and Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father. Right? They are the one God. Right? Their divinity is not derivative. It is this, this eternal union of Father, Son, and Spirit of the, the, the relations of begetting and proceeding that the Nicene Creed talks about. Um, this is not a union that, is, that they have come into. Right? It's not like on the Mormon view where you could have three beings brought into some kind of union of purpose, power, and will. But there's an ontological union there because the Father, Son, and Spirit have life in themselves. Right? Um, it's un- th- th- their deity is unoriginate, as Irenaeus puts it. Ours is derivative. It's participatory. It's, it's by grace. So the fathers will say things like, we become gods by grace, or we become sons by grace. Jesus is God by nature. Mm-hmm. He's the son of God by nature. Another way they do it is through the analogy of the iron or the sword in fire. And they, they say, imagine a sword that is stuck into a very hot fire. Now, prior to putting that sword in, it has certain attributes based on the iron or the steel that it's made out of. It is hard. It can bend. It can cut things because it's sharp. But it also has, there are all sorts of properties it does not possess by virtue of being an iron sword. But you put it into the fire. And, uh, and, and of course, they're kind of assuming an ancient understanding of how fire works. Uh, they said, look, the fire gets into the metal. Hmm. You pull it out and it glows, right? It's red hot, maybe even white hot. And it begins to look like the flames itself. The fire has penetrated the metal of the sword. And because of this, uh, the sword, by virtue of this union with the fire, has taken upon itself new properties that are properly the properties of fire, it can now ignite things. So you stick that very hot sword onto a, you know, a pile of kindling or some dry leaves and poof, it'll catch fire. But it's not the natural property of the sword or its metal. It's the natural property of the fire that is united to it. And so they say in deification, this is what happens to us. God fills us by his spirit so completely that we experience his immortality and corruption and glory and that it will actually radiate through us. But it is not natural to us uh, by virtue of, of our humanness. Our humanness is created humanness. 
Uh, unlike the Mormon view, we are not naturally divine and eternally existent, but rather we become divine by virtue of this union. Another one that they use is the mirror and the sunbeam. So if I were to take a mirror and uh, put it up so that it catches a sunbeam and it goes straight at your eyes. And I say, Arthur, what is it that you're seeing? Well, I'm seeing the sun, man. You know, get yeah. that out of my face, right? That's too bright. Uh, you're going to blind me, dude. Okay. Now, what you're seeing is the sun. Right? There is no break between the sun and its ray. And that sun ray could uh, be traced back from your eye to my mirror, through the atmosphere, through space, all the way back to that fiery orb millions of miles away. So you look at, they say, look, you look at a human being who has been raised immortal and corruptible and glorious, that's been deified. What do you see? You see God. You see God radiating through that creature. But that creature has not become god in the sense of that god is god right the creature has been permeated by god's radiant beauty and glory so that when other creatures look at him or her what they see is god first and foremost but there's still an important metaphysical difference between god and the creature just like you could look at the mirror and say well yeah, I see the sun, Carl, but I also, and you squint, I see the mirror. And you know that it's not the mirror producing that light. The mirror mm. is simply reflecting that light. So you, you spoke a great deal about grace and how this is about grace. Mm -hmm. um, I'm tempted to think, and I would assume some people might uh, say things like, uh, but it's also closely related to our sanctification process. Yeah. Right. Holiness. Like as in it's something to attain. Right. Because I think we could at face value look at Christians um, who are living lives, I guess, more like Jesus and less like Jesus. Okay. Both are saved. Both will inherit eternity and are children of God. But there's the more and less. Um, yeah. um, well, if they're both already deified, and it seems to me that this is also a concept that's like uh, future reality, but also present reality. Yes. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, uh, but how does holiness and sanctification come into this? You know, um, I don't know, kind of a concept of the holier you are, the more you will radiate, you know, this um, mm -hmm. presence of God or nature of God in your life. Well, I think certainly in terms of the, you're right that there's a, a now and a not yet aspect. Uh, we see this in the New Testament, perhaps most clearly with one of the most astounding of all the statements in the New Testament, and that is Revelation 3.21. Uh, there, Jesus says in his final statement to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, even as my father granted me to sit with him on his. That's an astounding statement, that those who overcome are given the privilege of being seated on a throne at the right hand of God with Jesus. Okay? That is as high as it possibly gets, right? 
There is no higher place that a creature could possibly be elevated to. At the same time, in Colossians and in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul talks about us being enthroned with Christ in the heavenly realms already as a present reality. And he will tell us in Colossians 3, for example, that we are to set our minds on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand. On what basis? Well, if we have been raised with Christ and already we experience resurrection life, but it's not simply resurrection life of Jesus having just walked out of the tomb. It's the fullness of resurrection life with the humanity of Jesus enthroned at the right hand of God, right? the full uh, a glorification and sanctification of human nature. So there's very much a connection between sanctification and glorification and deification. And some people will say, well, AI, that deification language makes me nervous. Can we just talk about sanctification or glorification? I said, well, we can. The, the downside, though, is it doesn't bring all those ideas together in an evocative, punchy kind of passage that whelms you with what it is that God has saved us for. Hmm. But I think it's entirely right that there is, of course, in, in Protestant terms, there's progressive sanctification. And we talk about the fact that, that while all those who are saved are saved by the grace of God to a wonderful inheritance of sonship, immortality, and glory, yet we are judged by our works. Uh, we are told that that some of our works will survive like metal through fire, others will be burned up like stubble, right? First Corinthians. Uh, and that those works seem to indicate some kind of differentiation in the age to come between uh, uh, the, the, perhaps the status or the, the role that human beings play within God's uh, economy. Um, and then, you know, of course, the flip side is those who are not saved, there seem to be degrees of punishment. And that's also a classic uh, Protestant teaching. Mm. Um, but I, I think you're right that in this life, when we focus on the now aspect, that we can experience more of God's presence in our life, and sometimes in ways that are evident to others, as we grow in our sanctification, as we grow in our union with Christ. And that's not salvation by works. It's simply working out our salvation, right? The, uh, um, uh, by means of our good works, by means of our growth in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit with, with uh, uh, greater obedience, love, fidelity, and so forth, uh, in likeness of Christ himself. Okay, so I'm going to ask this question that we have written down here that Armand asks, um, and then something added to that I will ask myself. Is deification the fulfillment of human nature or something being added to human nature? Now, that's a great question. I think it's, it's both. In this sense, God has created us in order to be his image and likeness. And he created us knowing that he would 
incarnate himself in the person of his son. And so humanity uh, was created for incarnation and deification. But uh, deification is not simply the realization of inherent properties within us mm -hmm. that we possess in and of ourselves. It is something that is only possible by means of union with Christ and union with the Spirit. So that's okay. the short answer. So uh, yesterday at Bible study with some of the guys, we were sort of uh, touching up on some of these subjects. Um, so when we look at it in that kind of a context, it's very important to realize that um, Satan uh, isn't necessarily, like, like when he says you will become like gods, right? It's, it's not necessarily a, I got to be careful what I say here, uh, a false statement because it seems to be that God intended for humans yes. to actually do it this way. It's just not, the way Satan wants this thing to happen is just not the way God wants it to happen. And that's really what's at odds here. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's been a lot of misreading of the, the Genesis narrative. I'm very partial to Irenaeus's reading where he says, look, you know, the, the issue here is that uh, God has this, his purposes for the perfection of the human race. And his Gnostic opponents say, yeah, but you believe in creation out of nothing. God's all powerful. Why didn't he, why didn't he just create us perfect from the beginning? Why mm -hmm. didn't he make us gods or immortal from the very beginning? Uh, couldn't he have done that? And Irenaeus says, well, no, he couldn't have actually. Even an omnipotent God cannot do certain things by fiat. Uh, if those things require processes. And deification is something that requires growth and uh, 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 development and virtue and, and, of course, union with God. And he says, well, what you've got here is you've got the two trees, and these are both great trees. And uh, Adam and Eve are fooled into eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're like little kids, right? They've been told, no, don't touch that. Now, maybe later God is going to say, okay, you can go ahead and have that. You're ready mm -hmm. for it. But they eat of it prematurely. And Irenaeus observes that they're recently created. And we have a lot of ancient texts that speculate about how long before the fall. And about as long as it comes is three days or so, right? <laughs> uh, is it a few hours? Is it a few days? Maybe a few weeks. But right, people uh, generally understood that the story is saying that we are uh, part of a race that fell very quickly after mm -hmm. creation. And though Adam and Eve may look like adults, they're young, they're immature, they haven't gotten the experience uh, that leads to virtue and growth in steadfastness and obedience and whatnot. The devil comes along through the serpent and fools them to partake of this thing. And note that the, the serpent's uh, uh, words insinuate that God is being stingy. Right? God knows that when you eat of it, you're going to become like him. Well, that's what Genesis 1 said humanity was made yeah. to be, right? His likeness and image. And so at that point, the serpent isn't lying, right? He knows God is going to make you like him, but he makes it out as if God is withholding this thing necessary for it because he's stingy and doesn't want them mm -hmm. to have it. And then, of course, you know, Eve looks at the tree and sees that it is good for food, a delight for the eye, and desirable to make one wise. And the narrative doesn't suggest that she was uh, um, wrong about that. 
right? And Irenaeus's uh, claim is, look, had, had they persisted in obedience, they would have eventually grown to where they could handle it and God would have said, go for it. Mm. It's uh, uh, like, say, uh, your kids, right? I have, uh, I'm training one of my kids to drive right now, my 19-year-old son. Um, there was a time where if he was in the car and he were to play with the keys, I would have probably slapped his hand and say, hey, don't do that, right? Don't touch the keys, all right? If he's three or four years old, I don't want my son touching the keys of the car. Bad things can happen, mm -hmm. right? You, we hear periodically these stories of nine and 10-year-old kids who decide they're going to go on a road trip and they take their mom's car at five in the morning <laughs> and, you know, end up in a wreck. We don't want that to happen. You're not ready for it. But now, right, my son is older, and it's like, you know, I'm, I'm actually having to push him to get his driver's license. Like, come on, guy, you should have gotten this already, right? I, I mean, I, I, have, I have to actually pull the key out and say, hey, look, it's time to take you to work. You're driving. Oh, do I have to? <laughs> yes, you have to. You need to get your hours in. Uh, and I think Irenaeus's reading of, of the fall has a lot going for it, hmm. and that that we can combine that with some other biblical insights, the, the passages from Ezekiel uh, that are often associated with the fall of the devil. If you read them, Eden gets mentioned there. Uh, combine it with what Jesus says in John 9, um, you are of your father the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and a liar. Well, the only time you see the devil murder and lie explicitly is in uh, the garden story, taking the serpent as his vehicle. Not that necessarily it was understood that way originally and he murders adam and eve by telling them a lie and they partake of it and it introduces death and um so i, I take it that yeah it, it's it's by craftily insinuating the wrong things omitting things that the lie is told in order to kill them and why because well go back to psalm 8 hmm. uh, what is man that you're mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. And the Greek text, which the epistle to the Hebrews picks up on, has it for a little while. Hmm. Right? The Hebrew text is ambiguous as to, is this a permanent state of affairs? Is this a temporary state of affairs? All we know is that at the creation, humanity is a little lower than the Elohim. Right? In the Greek, it's the angeloi, the angels. Hmm. Hebrews understands this based on the Greek text to mean humanity was created a little lower than the heavenly beings, but it was meant to eventually be over them. And I think if you combine all these things, you have a very good reason for why uh, uh, the devil would want to kill humanity. He doesn't want humanity to supersede the angelic order. He doesn't want humanity to be over the angels. And we have a number of uh, early Christian texts that take it uh, along these lines where they see that, that what motivated the devil wasn't the idea of trying to take over God's throne. What he's out for is that throne which is promised to redeem humanity. Hmm. And, and the jealousy is the jealousy that he has toward this newly created race of beings that God intends to be over the angelic host with the angelic host being ministers yeah. to them. Yeah, so, this, this definitely goes along with the, you know, the purpose of angels and their, and their function. 
um, within within the created order. Um, so there's a number of stories throughout church history, uh, and even even modern uh, history, recent history, that uh, make us maybe a little uncomfortable. I, I remember reading. I think if uh, I think it's um, Saint Anthony. There's a story about him, like walking into a room and people getting healed. Um, and again, a biblical one we could say is you know Peter passing by and. Um, his shadow falling on people and people getting healed. The, the, this naturally makes me uncomfortable. Okay, I'm sure it makes a lot of other people uncomfortable because it's it's strange. It's weird, right? Like it's it's sometimes we're like it's okay with Jesus. I mean, you know, he's God. He do all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And and then you get this stuff happening with human beings, and you go, okay, what's going on? Are these things somehow connected or related to this concept of deification? Um, as though, you know, the presence of God in certain individuals um, radiates, if one use that kind of language, a lot more than others. And so therefore, we see a lot more divine things happening, like healings. I, I think that's certainly possible that, that we, there's a connection there. I mean, you know, James tells us that the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And it, it makes sense to me that a person who is more in tune with God because they are growing in their sanctification. They are, are being filled with the spirit to a greater degree than others are, are going to be vehicles that God can use more effectively in those kinds of ways. Um, we do actually have stories in church history of people actually radiating. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure that I'm convinced all of these are, are truthful stories um, uh, versus kind of hyperbolic mm. descriptions after the fact. But if you read Simeon, the new theologian, a, a Byzantine theologian, um, and others, they'll tell stories of pious monks who radiated the glory of God the way Moses did. And they say, see, this is somebody who has attained to theosis. Um, and that's certainly within the realm of possibility. Nothing in my, my theology precludes that, uh, as, as something that can, can take place. I'm not sure that all the stories are to be taken at face value, but, um, certainly, you know, if it can happen with Moses, it can happen with others. It happened with Jesus in the transfiguration. Uh, these experiences though, led to big controversies in Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, the uh, you'll note that, that there's a change in terminology. The early fathers talk about theopoiesis. Uh, beginning with Gregory Nazianzus, we get this mm -hmm. term theosis. And that's become kind of the term of choice today. Uh, but it, it, it's often forgotten that theosis as a term seems to, to have some connotations that theopoiesis doesn't. And it becomes popular with Pseudo-Dionysius and Maximus Confessor. So we're talking, you know, we're, we're not entirely sure when Pseudo-Dionysius was written, but maybe the, the late uh, 400s, 500s, you know, uh, Maximus, you know, you're, you're getting another century or so after that. Um, and so we're talking about late patristic, early medieval Byzantine theology, really uh, appropriates 
Nazianzus' term theosis. And that's because I, I think, I mean, scholars can argue a little bit about this, but uh, that it, it's similar to the Neoplatonic term henosis, oneness, hmm. that we get greater emphasis on oneness with God as a lived experience and something that may be facilitated by ascetic practices within monastic communities. Uh, the doctrine itself for a long time is associated almost exclusively with monasticism in the East. Um, and in the 1300s, you get a big controversy that erupts in Constantinople about how to understand the experience that monks are reporting of theosis. Uh, they, are, they are engaging in various kinds of devotional exercises that involve the body, certain postures of prayer, recitation of the Jesus prayer uh, uh, repeatedly, which is, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, a sinner, um, leading to the claim that, that people have seen the divine light, the light of Mount Tabor, the Mount of Transfiguration. Mm -hmm. And you end up with a debate within Byzantine theology about, is this the uncreated light of God? Is it a created light? Is this God's essence being seen? Is it a creation of God? Or is it something else? Uh, perhaps uh, Gregory Palamas's answer is, it's the energies of God, mm -hmm. uh, God's activities being perceived, which are God himself, but they aren't the divine essence. Um, and that gets back to your question about the metaphysics, right? In Eastern Orthodoxy, beginning in the 14th century, we do get a metaphysical uh, explanation given for how deification works. Uh, on that view, it is by participation in the divine energies. Mm -hmm. And there's a bit of a question of exactly what these energies are, how do they relate to attributes, communicable or incommunicable attributes that the West talks about. Um, it's not actually clear that, that Gregory Palamas's friends all understood him in the same way, um, or his followers in the generation after. Um, I read a lot of David Bradshaw's work on this, and, and he, he gives a really nice explanation, but I'm not 100% convinced that it's Palamas's explanation. I think he might actually have a, a maybe a, a better one, but... Um, but anyway, but there you do get a metaphysical account. And there are other ways in which uh, we could have metaphysical analogies for what happens in deification. And I've actually suggested a few of these and so mm -hmm. have others, um, which would be probably a bit much to get into here. But um, I have an essay in the uh, TNT Clark Handbook of Analytic Theology, where I discuss a couple of these uh, that, that have been... Um, uh, that have appeared in the recent literature, um, but we, uh, things that relate to, well, I'm just going to leave it there. Okay. Um, we we're definitely, I think, going to have to have you on because these conversations go into various areas. I mean, I, I would like to have a conversation where we just devote a conversation about Mormonism and this subject. Oh, um, you, you suggested one that was very interesting to me, uh, which is this uh, transhumanism and how this yeah. relates to this. So there's a lot of uh, important areas. Here's a question that came in. It's, it says, in your journey on studying uh, deification, how important is a role or how important has Holy Communion played as a means of grace to meet this end? Well, I mean, traditionally, it, 
outside of Baptist and other free church traditions that have often taken a hard Zwinglian line on the Lord's Supper, uh, which, which may not actually fully represent Zwingli's view, but but what's called pure memorialism, that the mm -hmm. Lord's Supper is simply a, an opportunity to remember what Christ has done. Uh, outside those circles, um, whether we're talking Baptist sacramentalist views, which is a thing, uh, re traditional Reformed views, Lutheran views, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, uh, the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist is understood as a means of grace that facilitates our communion with God at a minimum, right? Whatever else is going on and, you know, all the debates about transubstantiation mm. and consubstantiation and real presence and, and what types of real presence are really real presence or not real presence and so on. Uh, it's it's pretty universally understood that that when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are communing with God with Christ himself mm. and that this is a means by which we grow in our sanctification, our glorification, <clears throat> and therefore plays an instrumental role in our ultimate deification. Uh, some have emphasized that more than others. Interestingly, in the West, in the Protestant tradition, Calvin has a very fascinating view here because he does see real presence. He does see a genuine communion with Christ, but he takes this view that would, which isn't taken by lots of others that in the partaking of the Lord's supper, we are brought into the presence of Christ in the heavenly realm. You know, there's a kind of Eucharistic mysticism mm. there. Um, and that, that, we do partake in the true body and blood of Christ by means of the spirit through the elevation of our hearts. So in the traditional liturgy, when it says lift up your hearts, Calvin will take that as lift our hearts and we enter into God's presence uh, in th uh, with Christ enthroned there. So there's certainly a lot within the Christian tradition Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox that would simply say, yes, it, 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 the, the, uh, the Lord's Supper is very important hmm. in that process. Um, now, I suppose one could probably make an argument for an enriched memorialism in which uh, the, the act of spiritually communing with Christ while one is remembering all that he has done to secure our salvation uh, can can be an opportunity in which the spirit works to accomplish these things um, in which one is not tying that to uh, uh, the physical elements or through a, a kind of mystical elevation of the soul. Uh, okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. So we're... it's a good question. Oh, it is. Yeah. Um... There's so much more we can talk about this, and I want to, I want to leave that for for later discussions. We're at an hour and 15, 16 minutes into this, so um, I always think about people watching replays of these things. And uh, uh, God bless you if you've reached this point and you're watching the replay because you are a patient individual. Maybe that's your process of you know uh, deification. Your patience is <laughs> you're, you're, you're attaining this. 
Um, and well, ascetic discipline that helps purify your soul. Amen. Amen. Uh, if people aren't convinced of that, let them move to Los Angeles and just put themselves into traffic. They will realize how, <laughs> how closer they get to Jesus in the midst of that and how much communion you can have with God in the midst of that, <laughs> even though it's difficult. Um, what are some things that you've produced? Books? Um, that people can uh, or articles people can get their hands on um, if they want to kind of read uh, get the nuances can, you know when you when you write this stuff at a you know either a popular or academic level the nuances are, uh, sometimes are a lot better and you can deal with them uh, sure. so well I've, I've published a number of essays on this I, I was working on a book that I had to put on the back burner a couple years ago because of some other issues that came up which I intend to get back to uh, but I've got um, on my academia.edu webs uh, as a web page uh, I think all my publications on deification are there I've got an article on Calvin and deification in the Scottish Journal of Theology, where I basically said, uh, looks like Calvin has deification. Uh, for example, he says in his commentary on 2 Peter 1.4, the end of the gospel or the telos is, if we may so speak, to deify us, a kind <laughs> of deification. Uh, couldn't be much more clear than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have another one on Calvin that addresses... Um, the incredulity a lot of people have expressed uh, because people have often portrayed him as being against any form of deification. And that one, oh, I don't have it with me, but that shows up in a book. Um, what was it called? Re Reforming Exegesis or something like that. I forget the title of the book, but uh, the, the essay itself is uh, uh an exotic flower, question mark, Calvin and the patristic doctrine mm. of deification, uh, dealing with this idea that people in the West who like deification must be importing something exotic from the East that's incompatible with our own native history. And I, I show that Calvin knew about the patristic doctrine. He was favorable toward it. He knew what he was talking about when he said that the end of the gospel is a kind of deification. And he does not object to orthodox expressions of the doctrine, even when they come from his opponents, like Cardinal Sadaletto. Mm. Um, I have a, a, a short and somewhat popular level piece called Deification, colon, A Truly Ecumenical Doctrine. And that showed up in Reformed Journal. And you can find it online on their website with really nice artwork. On my academia page, you can get a PDF of the printed version, which is less attractive, but citable if you're working on a term paper or yeah. something. I've got one on uh, deification and transhumanism in a book called Being Saved, edited by Mark Cortez, Joshua Ferris, and I think Mark Hamilton. I've mentioned the one in the TMT Clark Handbook. Um, I have one in... I know I've got another one somewhere. I've got a, a, a very long article on the early patristic interpretation of Psalm 82.6 hmm. and the origins of the doctrine of deification. And that shows up in the Journal of Theological Studies in 05, I think. And that's a long technical piece. Um, I've got one in, uh, duh. I should have brought, I don't know why I don't have it with me. Uh, Jared Ortiz has a book uh, that came out just earlier this year called Children of God. 
And in there, it's uh, I've got an essay on deification in the Reformed tradition. So I talk about Zwingli, uh, Butzer, uh, Ver Vermeule, Calvin. And the stuff on Calvin is different from the stuff I'd published before, so mm -hmm. mostly different texts. Then I have one in per the journal Perichoresis, which is available online for free uh, on recovering uh, the the reformational understanding of beatific vision and deification. So I've got quite a few out there. What we'll do is we'll try to put as many of these that are available um, in the description box. Sure. Uh, so that people can just like, so I'll definitely for sure put the academia one. Yeah. You can because I, I have, I have those ones downloaded. <laughs> okay. So that, and and it's, it's cool because you can, you can download them and you can, uh, you can read them. You can read them all uh, there on the site. Um, and then the rest, um, we'll try to get as many of them uh, for for folks who want to read this and think about it uh, a bit more. Um, I hopefully we'll get. Uh, I want to have one where you're interacting with Michael Heiser's views and some of this stuff about Sons of God and deification. Oh, well, I haven't I haven't read Heiser in a very long time. I, yeah. I interacted with him in email years ago when he was at the beginning of his stuff. I think he was still finishing his PhD then, and uh, we had some interaction about Psalm 82 and whatnot. Uh, and I know his works have become popular, but I, I haven't read any of his books, so yeah, I, I, I that won't work so well. Well, no, the thing is that it, it doesn't, you don't necessarily have to, it's just the ideas, because I kind of see a place where these things work together, uh, especially like being above uh, the Elohim and stuff like that. Uh, I yeah. think it, it fits with some of the stuff he says, but I could be completely wrong. So, um well, I want to right. thank I you. <laughs> Maybe I want to thank you for taking the time. And, and even though after a number of tries, we got this to work. And um, hopefully everybody that's watched this or is watching this has uh, enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe and like. And we'll definitely have uh, uh, Dr. Carl Moser back on to have some more conversations. It's intriguing. It's extremely important, I would say, especially as we aim our lives at following Jesus, being closer with Jesus, and in a metaphorical sense, radiating the presence of God in our lives. And for some of you guys, it might not be in a metaphorical sense. You might literally do that. I have no idea. But if you do, take a picture, please. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we would all love to see it. So I want to thank you. If you have any final words, go for it, and then we'll end it. Well, just thank you for having me on. I, I love talking about this subject, as you can tell. I could talk about it for hours more without taking a break. So uh, there's certainly more that we can say. Um, but thank you. Uh, good. Thank you. Well, thank you guys for watching, and we will see you later. All right.